All right, church today. Um, uh, well, if you haven't seen me up here before, uh, one of the things we like to do at Cross Life, um, and we kind of we've talked about it in chapter three, but a little bit today, is uh, is I'm I'm one of the elders here at Cross Life, um, and 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 we like to supply at least a, a little bit of the pulpit to uh, every once in a while to the other elders to preach and teach. And so what we're <coughs> excuse me trying to do every month here is is either have um, me preach once a month. Uh, it's actually every other month, and then Jared is, is, is seeking to be an elder, and so we're having him preach every other month, and that also gives Ricky, Ricky that one week off a month, um, because this becomes a, a, a taxing thing to do every, every week that he does. So that's why I'm up here this morning. This morning, and also because Ricky was like, I don't want to preach on this one. I'll let you do that. <laughs> So I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Um, I'll, I'll do it, and then, you know. But uh, this one's called, we're, today we're going to be in 1 Timothy 5, uh, 17 through 25. And um, if you want to turn there, the, the, the title of today's sermon is, is Care for the Eldership. And uh, I, I have a subtitle said, that it says, um, Retaining, Protecting, and selecting the church leadership. But if you wanted to make it a little bit easier and, 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 and put it all with, uh, I forget the term for it now, I'm gonna remember it later, you can help me, but, but doing all Ps. So, so uh, paying, picking, and protecting. Right, Alliterate, thank you, alliteration, yes. So, uh, I should have turned to you for that. Yeah, I should have said that, all right. Um, and, and so then I get also get in my three points that I normally like to do, so. Uh, Today, then, if you actually turn to 1 Timothy, last week we went through and finished chapter 4, and normally we just keep going straight on through the book, but if you notice, we've kind of taken a little bit of a, a leap ahead, and then next week we're going to come back and do, uh, um, and do the, the, the beginning of chapter 5. And chapter 5 starts laying out um, how to treat various groups within the church, right? And we know that 1 Timothy is really kind of a manual for for how the church is to, to be organized and, and, and act towards one another, right? Um, and I'm, I'm going to get into that a little bit again today. But it, in chapter 5, what we have now is, is how to treat men, young men and old men, how to treat young women and old women, and then how to treat el- or widows and widows of various you know, stages of life and, and, and abilities um, to do, provide for themselves. Well, then right in the middle, then, we have this section on the elders, and that's what we're going to be covering today. Um, we're going to look at the importance of leadership in the church and why Paul was particular about how Timothy established not only the qualifications of the eldership as he did in chapter 3, which we covered a little while ago, but also how elders were to be treated, protected, disciplined, cared for, and selected. Before we get to the passage then, um, let's, let's step back just a little bit. I'm always, I'm one of those that I really try to, as much as possible, have this logical flow of, okay, so this is why, you know, this is what we're supposed to do, but why, right? So I always like to try to get to the why to make sure that we remember what, what we're doing and why we do it. So let's step back a little bit and, 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 and look at why Paul thought maybe it was important to write these things to Timothy for the whole church. So this morning, um, Alyssa started us out, and I asked her to do this particularly, um, 
for this reason. I'm going to read it again, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Peter writes here, he says, But you are a chosen race, church. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when you speak against when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So you are a chosen race. You are God's people. We are God's people. We are his representatives on earth by the blood of Christ, right? We didn't do anything about it. He chose us. He saved us. The work is complete. We are now his people, his representatives. How, but so, so Paul's like, Listen, if you're his representative, the God of the universe, you need to act a certain way, right? You need to have this certain order. We need to do these things in order to, to, to show not only love and, and care for the brothers and sisters, but to, to maintain truth and to show to the outer world that, you know, this is what God is like. So he says, and uh, Paul says himself when he's writing to Timothy in, 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 in the chapter 3, he says, I, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm, I'm going to write these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, the people of the living God. And get this, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So how are we to act as the pillar and buttress of the truth. Remember, truth, church, I won't, so this is, again, this is a sermon on a very practical sermon, right? So we're not going to get really into the touchy-feely stuff, but remember the touchy-feely, the, why we do it. The truth is, God saves sinners. There it is. I mean, if you want it in three simple words, God does the action. He saves, and we are the object of that saving sinners. We don't do any of that ourselves. God saves sinners. It's the gospel. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the truth in a nutshell. And the reason why we got to do, you know, we want to do things right. We want to do the things that God has asked us to do in the way that he's asked us to do it and to love and honor one another. So that's what this letter is about. Paul's writing his letter to Timothy, as we have seen, to give him special and specific instructions on how to run a healthy church. What the church should do to remain healthy centered on God and his word, the truth. Paul was also writing this letter because of the troubles the church in Ephesus was already experiencing. Um, in Acts 20, we read um, that, that Paul had been in Ephesus, and he had been there establishing it there for three years, and then 
he finally, on, as he's about to leave, he gives his final sermon on the shore of Miletus to the church leadership in Ephesus, the church elders, before he leaves them. Paul had spent three years, like I said, building that church. And when he left, knowing the importance of the leadership to shepherd the church, he told the, elder, he told the elders this. He says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Church, only five or six years later after this, Paul's words seemed to be a prophecy. Heresy had sprouted up from amongst those in the church. And not just members, but leaders. We read this in, first, in the first part of the first uh, letter to Timothy where Paul gets right to the business, right after a brief uh, greetings, he gets to the business of warning against false teachers. Paul later came back to Ephesus with Timothy before he wrote this letter, and according to the first part of Timoth first, uh, Timothy's first letter, Paul resorted to drastic action at that time by excommunicating two of its leaders, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Before he left again then, he, he left Timothy, Timothy there, placed him in charge as his apostolic representative to lead the church and establish a healthy leadership of the church. So this whole letter then that we've been going through is an important set of instructions to Timothy and the church in Ephesus on how to act and have a healthy church body. Chapter 1, this very uh, short summaries of each chapter, we, we read about rejecting false doctrine and embracing and upholding the truth. Chapter 2 teaches the correct behavior for men, then women, in the church. Chapter 3 teaches the correct qualifications for elders, then deacons. Chapter 4 teaches how the church can remain spiritually healthy against apostasy. Chapter 5 teaches various groups within the church how to act and care for other certain groups. Okay, particularly regarding widows, elders, and, and those in bondage to slavery. And then what we'll get to in chapter 6 teaches more about the dangers of loving money and how to be content. And also it possesses Timothy's last charges before closing out the letter. Today, we're focusing on the three things, like I said before. Uh, the, uh, the, pay, the paying, the, I don't have it actually right here, the paying the picking and the protecting of the eldership. I have selection, retention, protection of leaders of the church, verses 17 through 25. So now that I've kind of set the stage for it, let's go in. Go ahead and hopefully you're in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. I want to read this passage containing Paul's uh, instructions to Timothy on the care of elders. Chapter 17, or uh, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, 
You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And it's like, he's like, oh, and, and no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also the good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. In this passage, church, we get important information on how the church body should care for the eldership. And also, earlier in the letter, we studied the qualifications of those elders. We learn from these two passages, which are probably the most extensive writing on church leadership, that Paul placed great importance on having good, humble, able, godly, godly leaders over the church and having the church care for those leaders. Now, we who are Christ followers and even those who aren't, know the importance of electing quality leaders to public offices, right? And we often encourage each other to exercise our right to vote, to place those leaders, um, uh, to be, have good leaders over the community for its own good. But we, church, should have even more concern for the leaders we place in the oversight, the guidance, and the teaching of God's kingdom community. In the eldership, we find the responsibility of one who shepherds the sheep, where the concern among these men is for watching out for false teaching and guarding the truth, for the spiritual health of the flock, and for leading it through the preaching and teaching of God's word. It's important that we get this right. When those who lead the church are unfit, or they are fit and are unprotected, or they are fit and not cared for, the whole church suffers. After giving the qualifications of eldership and deaconship, Paul exhorts uh, Timothy and the church to get this right, to do it well, because we are the representative people of God, the one who is holy and high. We are the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So he says, again, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So now let's get into it. Um, actually, I'm going to read that again. I'm going to back up a little bit. So this is point, well, really point one of the three points that we're going to hit on this, okay? This is the retention of or care for the elders, or if I'm just going to be point blank, it's the paying <laughs> of certain elders, okay? He says, let the elders who rule well, uh, rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. In this passage on elders, which takes place right after Paul's concern for widows and how they should be properly cared for, Paul must have an equal concern for how the church was treating the leadership. It's important to care for and honor them, 
just as it is important to care for and honor the other groups specified in the letter. A few terms to, to clarify then. Elders, notice it says elders, plural, right? Um, I think we've preached on this before, but I want to just kind of make it clear that they're, they're, here in Cross Life, we believe in the plurality of leadership in a church. Not one man at the top, but a plurality of leaders. And we believe that's God's design and it's for the good. Elder is also translated as overseer, okay? And it does not necessarily refer to age, but to those in oversight. This is how and why at Cross Life we want to establish a leadership by elders, not one leader at the top, like I said, but many. There's lots of benefits, <laughs> there's also lots of challenges, but we believe that this leadership style is biblical. Next, let the elders who rule, the word for rule translates from the Greek word, and I am not getting this right, so don't hold me to it, prohistimi, uh, meaning lead, care for, manage, or direct. So the translation of rule can be misconstrued as someone who is a boss, lording it over, so just be careful with that translation with rule. Some translations use care for, or care well, which can seem a little bit weak. I'll be using lead and leadership a lot for the purposes of expressing someone who both manages and cares for, one who guides and corrects. This is the office of an elder. Okay, 17 again. So let the elders who rule well or lead well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Okay, so let's delve into that a little bit. Let the elders who lead well. Aren't all elders supposed to lead well? Like, okay, so what does Paul mean? Aren't all elders supposed to lead and do it well, right? And all be worthy, considered worthy of double honor, especially those who preach and teach. But wait a minute, aren't, all elders supposed to be able to preach and teach, right? So, so what does he mean? We gotta, we gotta, gotta think about that. Paul is singling out particularly those elders who, who not only do the responsibility expected of all elders, but who especially work and labor for the church. On top of that, more so, and especially in the regular preaching and teaching of the word, the regular preaching and teaching of the word. Okay. Um, so, as we establish eldership here, um, we, we believe in a lead among equals. And right now, so we, we are all equal in, in, in our say and direction, but there's particularly one who does a little bit more of the preaching and teaching and, and directing and, and, and guiding of the church. That would be Ricky, right? So, so we can kind of almost, you can kind of see that picture here, right? Uh, this is kind of who Paul is talking about. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And like I said, what, so what does double honor mean then, right? Okay, Because as we said before, uh, aren't all elders supposed to be honored, right? In 1 Thessalonians, Paul even wrote to them and says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem 
them very highly in love because of their work. So you're supposed to honor them. But he says here, double honor. What is meant by double honor? Well, uh, in a book that uh, me, Ricky, and, and Jared are reading by Alexander Strauch, he says, by using the expression double honor, Paul wisely avoids slighting other elders of their honor, their due honor, and is able to call special attention to those who rule well and those who labor at teaching. So double honor refers to honor for an elder of the church, first honor, and honor, second honor, double honor, for his extra labor. Well, what does that mean, right? Let's get to it. The word honor here, again, is from a Greek word that I can't pronounce. It's, it looks like time with a little, with a little slash over the e, time or something. Time. Do you know how to say it? Time. Okay, and means respect, consideration, or high regard. And in certain instances, it includes the idea of monetary aid. For instance, if you look at Matthew fifteen three through six. I have several references in Proverbs here, Acts 28.10, if you want to write those down and look those up. Uh, honor sometimes refers to monetary aid. Honor, even in this letter, when we read, if you go back a little bit earlier in the ESV, um, in, earlier in this chapter, it says, honor, all, honor the widows. Okay, And it at that point, when he uses the word honor, it has that sense of monetary assistance, providing for the needs of widows who cannot provide for their own livelihoods. Also, I like this. Paul, when he uses honor rather than a more tangible term like money, it's, it's in harmony with his choice of expression for financial matters. It's kind of littered throughout his letters. Paul favors terms that express grace, liberality, love, and partnership. He, so he uses words like service, fellowship, grace, liberality, bounty, blessing, good work, good things, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, harvest of your righteousness, gift, and honor. The word honor, again, according to Strauss, expresses financial compensation in a thoroughly Christian manner. Financial provision for elders is really honor due the elders, and such honor conveys the congregation's esteem, thoughtfulness, and loving concern. Finally, then, concerning this, the rights of some in the brotherhood to receive financial support is in full agreement with other passages in Scripture. Jesus himself was a full-time teacher and preacher, who is financially supported by the believing community, and he called others to do the same. We can read it in Luke 8.3 and in Matthew 10.10. Paul also affirmed this right in his, uh, uh, this right for those who preach and teach to receive financial provision from others throughout his other letters, including his, letter, his first letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 9, verse 6, he says this. He'll probably recognize this. He was writing to them, and he says, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. 
Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak, certainly speak for our own sake? It was written for our sake, Paul says, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you as well? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more, he said to them. Nevertheless, we have not used it, made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So he didn't claim that for himself. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Coming back to Timothy, Paul then feels so strongly about the church's duty to care for the elders, probably because they weren't, the elders who labor in the word, that he wants no misunderstanding as to the meaning or necessity of the instruction. So he quotes this, uh, from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25.4 again. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And from Luke 10.7, the laborer deserves his wages. For those elders who rule well, especially in pre uh, preaching and teaching, we are to honor extra. We are to care for him by providing his needs for him so he can devote himself more completely to the labor of preaching and teaching. Church, just let me tell you, preaching and teaching, it takes a lot of time. Lucky for Ricky, every week, he can, he's like pretty good at getting it all together and, and doing it in a few hours, and um, he could, I'm sure certainly he could use more time, but I'll just tell you that I don't do that so well, and it usually takes me all half of Saturday or a little bit more to actually get everything out in a logical manner, okay, to do this well. So preaching and teaching, learning deeply in order to teach is a labor. It takes time, a lot of thought process, planning for correct logical flow and correct audience tailoring. But it's not just that. Caring for and, and praying for all the people under his care takes time and energy. If done right, the areas of life for this person, other areas of life get squeezed out than a man would normally take care of himself. This is why providing for him is so important. So he can devote himself to the ministry for the benefit of us all and the glory of God. So finally, cross-life, some application, some self-application for this, okay? How does this look in our church? So I've been preaching on all this. We know this. We want to set this. We have set this up in our church already in, in a certain way, okay? The elders of this church, currently Ricky and me, and Jared is uh, kind of seeking that eldership, provide our living through outside careers, okay? Again, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's how our church is at the moment. And, if, and um, it's, it's where we are. But because of this extra burden, we cannot have the focus of the church affairs as a full-time elder and pastor would be paid completely by the congregation. Again, no, there's no criticism in this. It's just where we are with that. Um, not all churches can support a full-time pastor like ours. Um, but we still here at Cross Life devote our budget to those who rule well, especially who preach and teach, by honoring those who preach and direct the church. 
like I said before, this lies mostly with Ricky since he's the one who primarily labors at preaching and teaching in much of the direction of the church. But for those who labor even here every other month, Jared and me right now, even, even that we have set up from the beginning that when you preach, you get a monetary stipend for having focused on that. Um, and, and, it's, and it's, an, it's, it's there to care for the person who is in the pulpit. Okay? We, be, we believe it's biblical and right and necessary, and it is honoring and caring for and protecting the eldership. So we've put that in place. But church, also because we're a little bit, because we have pastors who, are, who, get, their, who get their financial uh, stability elsewhere, consider, and, and, and we pay them, but it's also important, and I challenge us to consider uh, how we can support the eldership in, in other ways. All right. Um, right now, and I'm, I'm going to kind of step away just a little bit, um, knowing my friend and brother, <laughs> our, our friend and brother, Ricky, and how much, especially this last year, it really took a toll on him trying to do two things at once, especially with a growing church. Um, you know, I, it, it's great to, to support him monetarily, but oftentimes what he really needs is just people to step up and do something that needs to get done without him even like asking and directing over it, right? And several of you have done that, and, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing those things. But this is how you can show love and care for the elders. If you see a need in the church, you meet it. You don't even have to ask, all right? If you see something uh, that you think we could go or, or direction we could go or, or something that needs to be done, you may, I mean, maybe you'll ask about it, and then you, and then you do it. And that is an immense help, okay? It brings us to tears to see actually the body doing the hands and feet of Jesus and getting there and doing the nitty-gritty stuff, okay? We love that. And that's another way that you can care for your elders. All right. I'm keeping a timer on. You know I go long. I'll try to get through these here next time, or these next two points then. So, paying caring for your elders through monetary aid, double honor. Going on in verse 19, the second point, protection and discipline, protection and discipline of the elders. Do not omit a charge, says Paul, against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and the elect angels, I charge you, Timothy, to keep, excuse me, to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. A very solemn charge. Honoring elders also means protecting them, okay? Protecting them from malicious people and false accusations. We must not be naive, church, to the fact that there are many hateful and unstable people who would aim to ruin people in authority. Tares grow among the wheat. But we must also remember that even the wheat, God's chosen, are still, we're still sinful and we can inadvertently hurt those in, in leadership beyond repair sometimes if certain precautions are not in place. 
while doing my studies for the sermon, I came across a story of a young pastor who was accused by, by actually it ended up being his own secretary through a letter that she wrote directly to the elders and didn't even bring it by him. She was upset with him and found out later after, after the damage had been done that the accusations were false. Unfortunately, there was no checks or balances and the young man was summarily dismissed by the elders of the church based on one accusation. That's what we want to protect against. Okay, These directions then here are for the protection of those elders as you care for and honor them. Elders, because they speak hard truths, are supposed to be in the per- and, and are supposed to be in the personal lives of the flock, are vulnerable, are in a vulnerable position to be hurt by false accusations. And such false accusations can have damaging effects to both the elder and the church. So how does Paul say then to deal with accusations brought up against an elder? First, don't even entertain, tune out an accusation against an elder. Don't listen to it, blot it out. Unless there are, it's brought up by two, preferably three witnesses. Checks and balances on those things. Take time, he's saying. Be wise in it. Don't just jump to conclusions. You care for your elders by protecting them in this way. Well, as we go on, uh, it says, But as for those who do sin, persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may, the rest may stand in fear. So here's the discipline of the eldership. What are we supposed to do about those who are found to be in sin that needs correction? There would be one to be confronted by two or three first, as we saw. And if correction is not made, rebuked in the presence of all. And what he really means is in the presence of all the elders, especially. Okay, So that all of the elders can take note and remember the purity of the leadership is important. Yes, Rebuked in the presence of all, again, for the warning of the elders. Also, to say with emphatically that sin is serious. Especially, especially for those who are leading, it must be corrected. But what kind of sin are we talking about here? I know all sin is sin in God's eyes, but, but I, I read this and I thought this was, was important. That what, what we mean, not necessarily mean on sinful bents or the normal sinful, normal sinful battles. This, this author wrote, on the other side, elders have sinful bents and battles with sin just like every other Christian, which they themselves war against. And those should not be used against them unless they become intentional, dangerous, or damaging to others. Far too many preaching pastor friends have been under the sweat lamp of scrutiny when their church suffers a trial. But what type of sin are we to discipline? Persistent, unrepentant sin. And then I'll I'll just, as a disclaimer, also say that, you know, some sin, as is pointed out and corrected, can be all sin is, is able to be forgiven, but some sin we can keep going forward. Some sin disqualifies an elder, so we know that too. And finally, in this little passage, protection and discipline, he tells him he charges him with what? No partiality. Okay. Finally, because both protection of the elders and discipline to them keep them holy, 
is so important to God's family, Paul admonishes Timothy and he says, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elected angels, I charge you to keep these rules without partiality, do nothing out of favoritism. That's out of the NIV. I like that version just a little bit better. Keep these rules with no partiality, do nothing out of favoritism. To publicly rebuke a sinning elder takes courage. So in order to, for Timothy to not shrink away, Paul charges Timothy to be unbiased and impartial. Paul reminds him, Timothy, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and all his chosen angels are watching. They are the ones, not, they are the ones to fear, not the reactions of men. Do not show favoritism as it is easy to do to any individual. This is easy to do with those who are, who, who are well-liked well among the brethren, those who have power and influence, and those who are good friends. For the sake of God's people, the protection and the discipline of the church leaders must be upheld and done well. Another pastor wrote this regarding par partiality. He says, I recently talked to a missionary and told him, if you cover this leader's sin up, the entire congregation will lose trust in you and in the other leaders. It doesn't matter how important this man was or is to the church, he wrote. When you hide their sin, you'd violate everyone else's trust in you. He goes on and he says, All of heaven is concerned with the purity of the church. And a church that tolerates intentional sinning from its leaders to protect its reputation on earth will lose its reputation in heaven. No one is to receive preferential treatment. Christians are to show no bias. There must be no effort to protect those who are famous, especially gifted or popular. The attitude must be one of sorrow over sin. Sin is serious. To rebuke, he goes on, to rebuke sinning leaders is not easy, but God requires it because holiness in the church, holiness in the church, the buttress and pillar of truth, must be upheld. The big question facing the church is whether you're more concerned about your reputation or God's reputation and holiness. Don't listen to or share false accusations, slander, and comments undermining trust, but do confront a leader's defiant sin and pursue them, pursue them, care for them in order that they would repent. Christy, that's what I was going to end with. So <laughs> I decided I was telling Christy earlier that I'm going to I'm going to mix it up because that's a little heavy to, to end with. So last point, then I'm going in the order that Paul did: selection of the elders, or if we're doing it with the P, the picking of the elders. All right, verse 22. Do not be hasty, Paul says, in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I like this little parenthetical. He says, don't drink water only, or no, no longer only drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And then he goes on, okay? I'm going to come back to that parenthetical. The, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So he says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. One of the best ways to protect the leadership of the church is to be slow to appointing them. Do not be too fast in appointing the leaders of the church, but be thorough in examining their lives and in their work 
and in shepherding others. The laying on of hands was an act carried over from the Old Testament where they would identify with those on whom they laid their hands. And it's carried forward here so uh, to the New Testament. In this situation, it was the identifying and appointing of leadership. The laying on of hands is that, that, that act of identifying and appointing leadership. So how do we identify with those who should be given the great responsibility to shepherd? Or, so how do we identify them who are given the great responsibility to shepherd the people of God? Luckily, he gave us that. Chapter 3. We're not going to go over it because... Mm, starting to get to that time. But if you go back over chapter 3, we have that list of qualifications for an elder. These, this is the list we base on, right? And we must be careful that we do that. Because church, too many churches, use other means to select church leaders. Often churches will look at the man's talents and abilities outside the church. Good businessmen, public officials, and the like. It's easy to select elders to an elder board like selecting business leaders to a board running a company. You might say, well, he'd be a good leader. You know, he's a good guy, really productive business leader. Well, a bit greedy at times and wheels and deals some perhaps, but he won't do that here. Probably not. Certainly not what we want to do to, to pick an elder. We must take the time to examine the character and qualities of the, of the man and according to those set out by Paul in chapter 3. Paul goes on, So do this, don't, do, don't be hasty in choosing them, nor take part in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. What does he mean by that? Why else must church leadership take time to identify and appoint? Because Paul says that when you place someone in leadership in the church, you are giving that person your seal of approval. Okay? What, what if you hastily appoint someone to leadership that you find out later has persistent, unrepentant sins or false doctrinal beliefs? You've given your stamp of approval prior to this and thus identify with that person. You have taken part in the sins of others. Yes. Now, I don't know about you, but this kind of hits me hard. Growing up, I, didn't, I don't even know if I remember much about being preached on the utter importance of selecting church leaders. I honestly had not even given it, I give it some thought, but not enough thought until relatively recently as we have planned across life in the last few years. Kind of ashamed to admit that, but it's true. But this also makes me think of those bumper stickers, the bumper stickers I've seen my whole life. I, was remember, I just remembered like writing on my bike when I was like 10 and remembering this, uh, seeing it on there. Um, those bumper stickers that said, I didn't vote for him. You know those, right? I didn't vote for him. Well, what's this what is this saying? It's telling the whole world that you don't identify, approve of, or take part in the policies and ramifications of the leader's actions in, in, in power. But it also implies that for those who did vote for him, that they do identify, approve of, and take part in the results and actions of that leader. This is what Paul's getting at. Don't appoint leaders too hastily. You need to find out, or sorry, you may find out you set your seal of approval on someone who is unfit, according to the parameters in chapter 3, for the eldership, the leadership of the flock, which is super important. Take time in identifying those who will be God's under-shepherds. It is so important. And to 
to kind of buttress this, he says in chapter, uh, in verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So good works are, some good works are uh, conspicuous, and some, even if they're not, cannot remain hidden. What he does here is clarifies his admonition to take time in identifying leaders, okay? He's basically saying, you're going to know its tree by its fruit, right? Some sins are obvious, these men are obviously unfit to be elders, is what he's saying. However, some sins are not so obvious. But he assures him, he's trying to reassure him, if you take the time, they're going to be apparent. Because a tree reveals itself by its fruit. So taking time to observe is important. But likewise, on the flip side of things, Paul says, you know, some works are, some good works are obvious too, and, and, and perhaps then these men are obvious fit for eldership. In some works, good works will come over time. But what he's really getting at is take that time to identify the fruit of the tree. All right? It will come out. But you must take the time to observe the fruit. And then last little th part here. I told you I wouldn't forget the little parenthetical. I kind of, I kind of smile and chuckle a little bit at this. But I think there's something that we can, just a little bit of nugget we can learn from it, okay? I just, it's, 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 it sounds like a father to, a, you know, telling his son to not forget something, right? Because he knows him well enough. <laughs> he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Seems a little out of place, right? But remember, it comes right after keep yourself pure. Timothy was probably very conscientious about remaining pure in the sight of others. Well done. But sometimes to his detriment, he would do this. And Paul was probably reminded, uh, was probably reminded of this when he, when he was telling him this stuff and, and thought, right here, I'm just going to put this little slight correction in for him after I tell him to keep himself pure because he's almost too good at it, okay? Paul was saying something to the effect of, I get, what you're, I, I get that you're staying away from wine so that no one can accuse you of being drunk, which was a common thing in Ephesus, but you're, you're hurting yourself, so you know, have a little wine with it. It won't defile you and violate the purity I just spoke of keeping yourself pure. In fact, you need it, he's saying, in this case, to help you keep well. So I think, actually, a little bit then, the little nugget we can take from this is he's kind of hinting at, he says, be careful so that while watching for your purity, your purity, and the purity in the lives of the potential and actual leaders, that you don't go the other way and become legalistic in that purity, right? Okay, so... So he's talking about this purity, how important it is, but, you know, parentheses, be careful, <laughs> don't go the other way, all right? All right, wrapping it up, here's the summary of everything we just talked about. For the holiness of the church, God's people, the royal holy priesthood of believers, the representative of the holy God on high, those he has died for, the gospel, we must pay heed to these words of Paul in all of Timothy's first letter. Watch out for false teaching. Heed the roles and responsibilities of the members of the church. Uphold the purity of the leadership. Fight for spiritual health amongst the brethren. And care for the elders who labor 
and teach. Honor them through financial and other support. Protect them against false lies and false accusations. Sorry, lies and false accusations. But protect them and the church from damaging sin as well. And finally, be careful. Take time. And you honor your elders by taking time and being careful and being wise and choosing those who lead a song, lead alongside them who are already in leadership. With those things in mind, let's pray. Father, we realize that through your word, how important you say it is to place godly leaders in eldership to lead your people and how important it is to protect and honor them. Father, we want nothing more than to do this well. To honor you by keeping your instruction and to glorify you by being the hands and feet of Christ himself. Both amongst ourselves and to those who see us from the outside. I pray that, I pray that we receive this instruction with love and humility toward others. And that we take it and institute it well to the glory of our one and true love. Our glorious, pure, just, loving, our gracious Father who pursues us and purifies us through Christ. May we honor you, Father. We love you and ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.